I am, by the way, lifting the ban on the word Amazon for our particular (laughs) interview here. It would be tough to not. I'm so excited about this episode, I don't even have a quippy intro. You're listening to Open Books, a show about bookstores by people in bookstores. I'm your host, Charlotte Kolaluka, from Mystery to Me in Madison, Wisconsin. On today's episode, I had the immense pleasure and honor of talking to Danny Kane of The Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. Danny is the owner of The Raven and is the Midwest Independent Bookseller Association's bookseller of 2019. This is a huge deal, and I guess it's kind of a huge deal that I got to chat with him. Danny's work as a bookseller reaches far and wide. He's a social media wizard, particularly on Twitter, and he recently got into the printed word game with what I'd call required reading, a zine called How to Resist Amazon and Why. Don't worry about taking notes. The articles and zine mentioned in this episode are in the show notes. So without further ado, Mr. Danny Kane. I mean, you came into my orbit with your now famous Twitter thread from like May or something, 2019? April. April, yeah. yeah, About It was just before I started working at Mystery to Me. Um, I had already been hired, but I was finishing out what was basically a prison sentence at a um, tech company. And I was following all these bookstores on Instagram because I was so excited about this new job and saw your thread and shared it to Mystery to Me because I thought it was so... It just, it, it it blew my mind. I had never thought about the intricacies of Amazon versus independent bookstores before. And here you did it in like 10 tweets or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to talk to you about those intricacies and your zine, how to resist Amazon and why. The why is really obvious, I think, to a lot of people, but the how is less well known. Um, sure. So... Well, we should mention that you were, in no small part because of that Twitter thread, the Midwest Independent Booksellers Association Bookseller of the Year in 2019, which is no small feat. Congratulations That's again. It's a huge honor. Thank you. Yeah, it's a huge honor. Can you tell me a little bit about, I mean, now you own the Raven Bookstore, but if I remember correctly, you didn't always own it. <laughs> you used to just go there. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came to own the Raven? Sure. I, um, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, um, in the suburbs. And so my home bookstore for most of my childhood was the Borders, mm-hmm. um, in, in a big strip mall at the north end of town. And um, I, I started out of undergrad as a teacher. Um, I taught high school for a couple of years and then decided that it really wasn't for me. So I, I went to grad school in Cleveland, and then um, I decided to get an MFA in poetry because mm-hmm. it seemed like the poetry thing was going pretty well. And um, so my wife and I started uh, a grad school search at the same time, mm. um, and we both ended up getting really good offers from the University of Kansas. And so it was like, okay, it looks like we're moving to Lawrence. Unlike anywhere I had been before, really Lawrence had a, a super vibrant and interesting independent bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, within walking distance of my house. Um, there are great bookstores in Cleveland, but for for whatever reason, I felt like I could really create a relationship with the Raven. I, it was one of the first places we visited when we were, when we came out to shop for apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon, when, we, when we arrived here, one of my goals was like, I got to get a job at the Raven. Um, <laughs> so some, someone from my, grad school program I already worked there a friend of mine and she yes. was 
working on the boss to um, Heidi, my old boss and friend, to convince Heidi that there was a job opening, that I was a good candidate. And that, that took about six months of me becoming a, a regular, which I was going to do anyway. Sure. And then the, the timing to align. And so as soon as I started, I fell in love with it. Uh, I became more and more interested in the bookstore business um, and, and tried to get involved in as many ways as I could in the store. And by the time my degree was wrapping up, I knew for sure I didn't want to teach. Um, and Heidi was thinking about retiring. Um, so it just worked out with the timing. I, I graduated in May, uh, and uh-huh. Heidi retired, and, and the transition happened that August. And what year was that then? 2017. Oh my gosh, recently, yeah. Yeah, can you, I don't know very much about Lawrence, Kansas. Can you kind of paint a picture for me of Lawrence? Yeah, it's a it's a really great college town. It's kind of a classic Midwestern college town. I think it probably has a lot in common with Madison, although it's not quite as big. Mm. Um, it's not the state capital, but there's a, a really great long uh, main street that's driven by a lot of independent retail and independent businesses. Mm-hmm. Um and Lawrence has this progressive streak as part of its history. We, we really strongly identify with the, the free state movement leading up to the Civil War. Mm. So there's like, John Brown is kind of a hero here. They make these license plates um, with, with John Brown on the front that just say Lawrence, Kansas. And like one out of every five cars <laughs> you see in Lawrence has a John Brown license plate on the front. There's, there's kind of a, a progressive or beatnik streak um, William Burroughs lived here at the end of his life, um, and a lot of his buddies are still around. Um, uh-huh. And there's a ton of writers here. The the music scene, um, it was a really kind of a capital for Midwestern indie rock in the 90s, and there's still a great music scene. So it's a really interesting place to live. And I think it punches above its weight in terms of arts and culture. Yeah. For a city of its size, there's certainly a lot of really interesting literature and art going on here. Cool. Yeah. The more I talk to people at various bookstores, whether they're in small towns or big cities, I find that they are always at the center of these artistic communities. Right. And it's not just like writers and readers um, or professors. In our case, we have a lot of professors and their families in our neighborhood, but it's always near a music scene and a huge theater scene. Um, Yeah. I was just out in Spring Green, Wisconsin uh, at for, for Arcadia books. And they're this tiny town of like 1600 people. But while I was there, I learned it's this huge arts haven that people don't know about. But the bookstore is part of the ecosystem that keeps that the many conversations going and creativity, which I think is so interesting. Yeah. It's almost I can't well, I think, tell if it's chicken or the egg kind of thing of is it because <laughs> of the bookstore yeah. or <laughs> I think the health of an independent bookstore is a really good barometer for the cultural health yes. of the town that it's in. Um, so and if, if you've got a thriving indie bookstore in your city, regardless of how big it is, you probably have a lot of other interesting things going on too. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that with the rise of Amazon, I maybe they were there and I didn't notice, but certainly my awareness of independent bookstores became much more keen. Um, and then those like borders is a thing of the past, rest in peace. And Barnes and Noble is in trouble. So when you moved to Lawrence, did you always, when you found the Raven, when you were working at the Raven, of course, but before then, did you always have it in mind that you were going to like <laughs> go after Amazon? Did you see it as a problem before other people saw it as a problem? As soon as you enter the bookstore world, 
you're kind of indoctrinated into this. Like you need to have a sense of defiance to make it work. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's true of everybody. But that defiance is built into the Raven because like there was a Borders maybe 200 feet from our front door, right across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was there from 97 to uh, like 2011. Mm-hmm. And and so the Raven spent 14 years um, kind of beating the odds. Uh, and, and surviving with a megastore across the street. So, um, and if you go back and you read these old newspaper articles, it's so fascinating because the, the original owners of the store, um, there were all these newspaper articles in 1997 when Borders was about to open. It was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the end of independent retail in downtown Lawrence. And if you look at the talking points they use, they're really similar to what we say now about Amazon. And they say, well, we offer something more personal than Borders. Um, our, our staff is knowledgeable and approachable. We do more event programming. And like those are the talking points that indie bookstores use today. Yeah. I think it remains to be seen um, if that strategy is enough, because Amazon, I think, is a lot bigger and scarier than mm-hmm. Borders ever was, than the mega chains. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the strategy really hasn't changed that much. Uh, since 1997 and it appears to be working so far Mm -hmm. Uh, fingers crossed we can continue to thrive my understanding of the economics of indies versus amazon is Mm -hmm. very rudimentary i think it's something like if you spend a dollar at an independent bookstore 67 cents of that dollar stays in the community and then if you spend it at a big box store which is now like barnes and noble or target it's something on the order of 40-something cents, 42, 43. And then with Amazon, nothing, no, not a penny of that dollar gets um, recycled back into the community. That is as much as I know. So what's a good way for somebody to start learning about how their money affects a community uh, when they spend it locally versus at a place like Amazon? Oh, that's a good question. I know I know a good zine to read if you're looking. <laughs> I, I do like that that breakdown of the money and I think it's it's basically correct. And so at an independent bookstore, the money that leaves is basically us paying publishers for the books. Um, and you know, that's anywhere from fifty to sixty percent of the, the price of a book goes away. Um, and you can't help that unless uh, that publisher is located in your area, which is super cool. Um, yeah. We sell a, a ton of books from the University Press of Kansas, which is just down the street from us. And in that case, really, 100% of your dollar stays in in the community. Um, so I think that's another reason why it's really great that indie bookstores are focusing can focus on local literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but after you pay for the book, um, you're paying rent. That stays in the community. Um, you're paying utility bills um often that stays in the community and you're paying salaries and like that's definitely staying in the community that money goes right back into the community mm-hmm. when people buy groceries or pay their rent but like amazon it's really true that money just goes away it's almost all of that dollar is gone maybe the delivery driver is a local um, mm-hmm. and, and their salary stays but the the shipping the um, the cost of goods the, the profit to that it's all none of it is in your community it goes to wherever Amazon is doing their work mm-hmm. um, so it, it is really important to think that money you spend in a locally owned independent small business that's the, the best way to keep money inside your local economy 
Yeah. Um, and, and those statistics are pretty good. The American Booksellers Association has some pretty good resources about that um, on their website, kind of breaking down the economics. Mm-hmm. What are the ramifications of a dollar staying in Lawrence or in Madison versus going all the way back to Amazon HQ? Well, you're, I think I, I always I think the, um, your money is your vote is, is a really good um, kind of mantra. Um, mm-hmm. So when I say your money is staying in your community, you're, you're investing in your community. Um, I believe in a thriving Madison. I believe in a thriving Lawrence, and I'm willing to invest in that. Uh, I'm investing in a, a downtown that has plenty of, of open and thriving businesses. I'm investing in the people that live and work in this town. Mm-hmm. I'm investing in like the, the places we give donations for silent auctions. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for the school PTAs that we give T-shirts to, um, I'm investing in the sports teams that these small businesses sponsor. These independent small businesses. I mean, we just bought Girl Scout cookies. Um, I posted on Twitter yesterday. I was like, "Someone's got to sell us book Girl Scout cookies." And we got in touch with the local Girl Scout troop and placed a big order for the <laughs> store. We're investing in those Girl Scouts, and Amazon is really not interested in any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, places like Target might be a little bit more interested, but the, the real driving forces of those communities um, and the, the intangible things that really make a community tick um, are driven by small, independent, locally owned businesses. Yeah. And so when you spend money at those places, you're, you're investing directly in your community. It's the most efficient way to invest in a thriving community. Yeah. I mean, if that speech doesn't get people, I don't have a lot to relate to with them. (laughs) But I'm sure there's someone out there who would argue that Amazon is super convenient. It just comes right to my door. I don't have to do anything. I just click a button. There's an algorithm that knows I read this book. I should read this book next. What would you like to say to those people? Well, it's, what are you investing in? You're investing in artificial intelligence. You're investing in giant warehouses. You're investing in jobs um, that are are dangerous and have extremely high turnover um, and are often temp work. Um, so Amazon loves to say our, our starting wage is $15 an hour. Um, okay, cool. That's for Amazon employees. Amazon relies on a massive network of temps that fall outside of that promised $15 an hour. Um, and even at $15 an hour, the jobs, um, Amazon warehouses have an injury rate that's twice the national average um, for, for the warehousing industry. So, like, that's what you're investing in. Wow, and, I did not know that statistic. Yeah. It oh was That was um, a big study put out by The Atlantic in November, which I think is really important. When you invest in Amazon, you're investing in giving more money to the world's richest man. Um, and, and this whole network... That's, that's built on efficiency and not arts and culture, not, not communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the prices are low and, and it's convenient and, and fast, but that has a lot of ramifications. Well, and what kills me about Amazon the most is that the book sales to them, even though they started out as a book company of sorts or purveyor, the books are negligible. That was just to rope people in. And now, of course, we see that they can they sell anything. I mean, that's the whole shtick, right? You want the most obscure yeah. item in the world. You'll find it on Amazon. And now they own Whole Foods. Like, what's next, you know? Amazon is a data company mm-hmm. um, at its center. It's most pro- One of its most profitable divisions is Amazon Web Services, which is the backbone of much of the Internet. 
Um, and they make so much money off of um, AWS that they can afford to not really make a ton of money on the retail mm-hmm. sector. Their retail sector is disrupting the entire retail industry. So the most valuable thing to Amazon is your data, um, is your, your purchasing habits, the things you say to your Alexa, your mm-hmm. Prime subscription, your, your browsing habits so they can target you with advertising. Mm-hmm. Really, Amazon's product is not the things that come in the smiling boxes. Amazon's product is you. You are the most valuable commodity to them. And then collecting data about you and your habits, that's how Amazon makes the most money. Yeah, actually, can you talk a little bit about Alexa? And because I all I know about Alexa, and this is enough to put me, she's listening to me right now. My wife accidentally won one at work and uh, (laughs) Joanne knows. And it's I mean, she owns Mystery to Me. She's not pleased that there's one in our house. But look, sometimes I'm baking cookies and I want to take a nap. And it's really nice to be able to put a timer on. That's pretty much all I use it for. Alexa, it she they does it have a pronoun? I don't even know. Um, I don't know. Is listening all the time? Is that correct? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's always listening, and and the the answers when anyone asks Amazon what it does with the recordings, the answers are great. Oh. Um, it, it it keeps a lot of it, um, and there was a really interesting. Um, I forgot what publication it was for, but someone just like requested all of their data from Amazon and somehow they got their file. Um, and not only did it record and keep everything it had ever said to its Alexa, um, this person was a Kindle user and it kept track of every, every time they stopped, every passage they underlined, every little bit of interaction with that book was stored in Amazon's, um, Oh my God. Data servers. Um, and so Amazon, it's listening, but it's also hanging on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they'll say, like, we're not going to use this for any third-party stuff. We're not blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, they have the data. And I, I don't know if they or any other big tech company has ever given a really trustworthy answer about what they're doing with, with all this customer data. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it's murky. I'm not making any accusations that they're selling what you say to your Alexa, but they do have it. That's a fact. Is they, they keep track and store everything you say to your Alexa. Um, and to me, that's just another reason to like shop at your food co-op or right. the independent hardware store or the independent bookstore. We don't care what customers do with their books. And yeah. if like if we're going to use any data from the customer in order to make another sale to them, we're just going to ask them what they most recently read. <laughs> right. And we're not going to like remember it to use against you possibly later. Right. Yeah. And we're just going to use human intuition to make another recommendation. Right. Um, or like the data of becoming friends with regular customers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so and there's no artificial intelligence about it. It's just plain intelligence. And I think that's a lot easier to swallow than this little microphone in my house is memorizing forever everything I say to it. Artificial intelligence is only going to get you so far. It can't understand why does somebody like this or not like this. And it doesn't calculate risk. It's just going to keep giving you the same story. I mean, more or less, over yeah. and over and over again. When the whole point of reading a book is not necessarily always to feel comforted by the same pattern in a story, but to experience something new. So I see Amazon as a huge threat to our ability to widen or broaden our horizons because we're always just going to be reading the same thing over and over again. And that's how we get to a place where we are in 2020, right? Of people just 
burying their heads in the sand or going down the same rabbit hole over and over again and unable to open up to, I liked this book with this story. What if I read the same story, but from the opposite point of view or, you know, something, something akin to that. Do you share that feeling of Amazon is not only a threat to our economy, but to our culture at large? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And so one of the things, one of the things built into our store philosophy is that, uh, like reading, if anything develops a reader's sense of empathy, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you can broaden your understanding of other people, uh, by reading books, especially books from diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Alexa doesn't know anything about empathy. Amazon logarithm doesn't know anything about empathy. And also on a very basic level, Amazon is working to devalue the book. So mm-hmm. It's, you saw in the Twitter thread from April, selling a $26 hardcover for $15 is dangerous in a business sense yeah. for independent bookstores. But it's also, if you cheapen the general idea of the capital B book, uh, people will trust it less. It, it becomes mm-hmm. you know, more, more junky. It's the same thing that's happened to music. People expect music to basically be free because yeah. of the internet, um, and which completely devalues the, the work and the inspiration and the time it takes to create a music product. And that's totally upended the music industry. And if Amazon continues to sell books at ridiculously discounted prices, the same thing is going to happen and people are going to expect books to happen for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and writing is going to become even less viable of a career path than it is now. <laughs> no kidding. That is such a good point. I have never thought about the parallel between the music industry and the book world and yeah, the book is becoming, as you said, devalued. And when the book becomes devalued, how does a store make money? Well, we'll have to start charging for our events, right? That is the yeah. most obvious next step. Then author tours are going to become this expensive moneymaker on, on yeah. all fronts. And if we think about the social implications of that, it will again become an activity of the elite instead of a democratic, anyone can come, anyone should come. That is also a very dangerous thing, I think. Right. Oh, yeah. I think a lot about, because um, I think the flip side to the argument of devaluing the book is that lowering prices on books makes books uh, wider to access. And I, I push back on that a little bit um, because, A, as I've already said, writers need to be paid. It needs to, to make sense and be rewarding for someone to create mm-hmm. um, a, a new work of art on the page. And B, this is a reason why we, we absolutely adore our public library. Yes. We work very, very closely with the Lawrence Public Library because they can offer access to books outside of the capitalist space. I think public libraries are the last great anti-capitalist space in America. Preach, um, yes. And, and, and we love that. And we do events with them. We They're probably our closest partner here mm-hmm. in Lawrence. I think you can continue to value the book without just expecting everybody to be able to spend $26 in the hardcover yeah. every week. So I want to make that clear um, that I want to make sure that books are valued, but also that, that people not of means or not of privilege can also access it. Yes. Um, but yeah, all of our events are free. Um, it's really important to us. Um, and if we have to start charging for events, we are less able to contribute to the cultural life of our mm-hmm. community. Um, 
and that's the last great advantage we have over Amazon is that we're we're contributing to the the arts and, and culture community in Lawrence. And if you take that away from us, um, that's losing a really big part of our business model. Do you foresee that they are going to branch out into events, or is that not even worth their time? No, I don't think so. Um, hmm. I think we got to hang on to that because that's ours. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not interesting to them. Um, yeah. you, you're putting an author in front of 50 people in the library um, does not enable them to collect that, that priceless customer data. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Amazon's working really hard to um, not be in communities to get to get to gather its power from elsewhere, other places than the gathering of humans. Um, and even their, their, their brick and mortar stores, the, the, the curation decisions there are driven by online algorithms. And they'll yeah. like, they'll have a table up front. That's like these all got 4.7 stars or above on amazon.com. So even their, their so-called their quote unquote human spaces aren't really driven by, by human intelligence. Anytime Amazon ventures into the brick and mortar or the human space, um, their ethos is still data-driven. How do you think that being, <laughs> I love the idea of a human space, being a human space, an independent bookstore, is helping or healing our, this huge schism in our in our nation right now? Uh, it's, I think it's absolutely helping. I don't, I don't think it's a huge help, uh, but I do think it's not nothing. I think the the right kind of bookstore can be a truly radical space. And as much of the culture is devaluing art, is devaluing intellectual thought, um, is devaluing empathy, is devaluing the the listening to to others, a bookstore can, in its own way, work against that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we value ideas. We believe in art. We believe in, in reading to create a sense of empathy. Um, so that's true of really any book, I think. It's been, well, we any book that we have. <laughs> that goes for us, too. Yeah, good uh, clarification. Wanna, <laughs> there are certain books that are dangerous yes. um, or, or working against what I'm talking about, and we try our best to avoid those, yeah. or at least avoid promoting and displaying them. Uh-huh. Um, but just as a space that, that values intellectual thought and art I think anyone who's doing that is kind of a radical it's it's really important I mean so so Trump's budget proposal which of course is just a proposal it never actually happens but for four straight years he's proposed entirely cutting the NEA and the NEH mm-hmm. um, and, and that's an assault on publicly funded arts and humanities from the highest level of government um, so it, it make it we make partnering with local nonprofits and local arts organizations a central part of our, our business. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in April, we're throwing a, a massive new literary festival called Paper Planes in Lawrence. And it's it's us plus like 10 other organizations and nonprofits and entities at the University of Kansas. Um, and just the fact that we're centering um, the work of these organizations as their very mission is under attack from the highest levels of government mm-hmm. is an act of resistance. Yes. So we resist those assaults uh, by centering that work in what we do. Mm-hmm. And we're one full-time employee and nine part-timers in a thousand foot square, thousand square foot bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, but we're not alone. There are a lot of other people doing it and, and we have a lot of customers um, and, and, 
the town of Lawrence, Kansas can look at us and, and, and see us centering and making this work important. And that's true in all these other little pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is possible to, to build a, a grassroots resistance um, by, by centering the work that's, that's so actively being devalued elsewhere. Yes, yeah. Well, and I don't know, did the, the Raven participate in bo- uh, bookstores against borders? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So did um, we. Totally. That speaks to bookstores being able to tap into large audiences of people who in whom empathy is still alive and well, right? Because that was a yeah. national turned into a national movement. I was so inspired by that. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, it. I I'm, think that's a, a, a really good vision for the future of bookselling. Absolutely, I think it's a way forward uh, for the industry. It, that kind of. Um, Activism, using social media as a platform, activism of any kind. I mean, mm-hmm. um, of course, that's a worthy cause that we 100% believe in. But just the, the idea of the bookstore as an activist space, I think, makes a bookstore really nimble and adaptable for the future. About your zine, How to Resist Amazon and Why, I think uh-huh. we've, we've sort of covered pretty extensively why one should resist Amazon. But what's a good first few, let's say, three steps for how to resist Amazon? Number one is shop local. That's the absolute most important thing. To the extent that you can and you're able, buy whatever you need to buy from businesses that are are owned by people in your region. Mm-hmm. We recently switched. We used to do our grocery shopping at Dillon's, which is a national grocery chain owned by Kroger. Mm. Um, and and we switched to shopping at our, locally, our local organic co-op. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there's a locally owned discount grocery store called Checkers. There's only one location. It's it's owned in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amazon isn't directly related to any of these companies, but just in, in building an ethos and, and training my brain um, to ask how much of this dollar is staying here, yeah. um, it has changed my buying habits. And I think that's if people normalize the idea of thinking, is this money staying locally and how much is it, how much of it is, um, is, a, is a really important first step. I think second is to learn about all the companies that Amazon owns. And oh. this is one of the tricky, one of the things that makes it tricky to boycott them. They have really long tentacles. Yes. Um, and so, sure, people can stop shopping on Amazon, but you also have to think about what you're posting to Goodreads. You have to think about Whole Foods. You have to think about Zappos mm. um, and Twitch. And it's just good to learn exactly how big Amazon is because number one, it'll help you learn the other companies to avoid. And number two, it'll give you a great sense of the scale of, of what Amazon is doing, which is much bigger than just sending those little smiling boxes out into the world. Yeah. Three is to make sure you're participating in that, that local arts and culture scene. I think it's really important to, to go to events and, and visit your library, go to the symphony. So much of this stuff is free too, which is so great. So you don't even, it's not even about spending money, but to just participate in the cultural life of your town, mm-hmm. you are, you are valuing things that Amazon is trying to destroy. Um, and, and that's where the resistance comes from is these, these people um, who believe in art, who believe in, in, literary culture who believe in in small businesses and keeping money local and so if you're a participant in that i think naturally resisting amazon will come a lot easier this episode of open books was recorded in madison wisconsin and lawrence kansas if you're not already you should absolutely follow the raven bookstore on twitter at raven bookstore 
Danny runs the account himself, and it's the best thing you'll read every day. You can also find The Raven on Instagram and Facebook, and you should definitely sign up for their newsletter at their website, ravenbookstore.com. Danny's zine, How to Resist Amazon and Why, is on its way to our store, but if you're not a Madisonian and you want a copy of your own, you can find the order link in the show notes. Open Books is produced by me, Charlotte Kolaluka, out of Mystery to Me in Madison, Wisconsin. You can find Mystery to Me online on Facebook, on Instagram, and at our website, mysterytomebooks.com. If you know someone who loves bookstores as much as we do, tell them about our show. It also helps us if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. And of course, no episode of the show would be complete without 15 Seconds of Jane. So here she is to play us out. Today's topic is audiobooks. Should people listen to them? Ready? Go. I listen to them when I'm on long trips. I love them. Um, it really depends on the uh, narrator. If I really get into the um, audiobooks, I recommend them highly. Um, they make the time go fast, and they bring a different uh, focus to your brain. Favorite uh, audiobook that you listened to last in two seconds? Life After Life. Nice. Kate Atkinson. Great work. All right. That's it. Thank you.